Later humans begin to intermarry with the sons of God. Now the sons of God, if you want a deeper thing on this, go to my website. But the sons of God basically is a phrase that refers to supernatural beings. And there's an intermarrying between humans and supernatural beings. How does this work? I don't know. Do they really truly have sexual relations with each other? We don't really truly understand it. But the idea is not exactly how this all biologically worked. The idea is that humans are now going to the sons of God instead of God himself. We call these angels and demons. The First Testament calls it the sons of God. The sons of God is just the First Testament way of saying what we know as angels and demons. And so angels can be good, holy angels, or they can be evil, demons, fallen angels. The First Testament calls them sons of God, and they can be good or they can be bad. And so these sons of God present themselves as alternatives to Yahweh. They become alternatives that the humans begin to embrace. And that's the idea of the intermarrying. It's not so much any kind of a true marriage or a sexual conception that happens between them. The main idea is that humans are embracing these alternative gods that rebel against Yahweh, and they're seeking them out for their hope and wisdom and life instead of Yahweh. They all gathered together, and it says that every thought of every human was only evil all the time. Now, I don't know if this literally means that no human ever had a good thought ever, or if it's just a metaphor for saying that every thought is laced with selfishness and wickedness and evil. And even when we're being loving to each other, there's still a selfish element um, that is going on in there. And that they become so evil and so wicked that God feels the need to wipe them out. What this shows is that sin has infiltrated all of humanity. It's not like there's one family over here that's evil and sinful, but there's other families over here that are very good. The idea is that now God is showing that not only has sin corrupted the individual, Adam and Eve, the family, Cain and Abel, but all of humanity is corrupted with sin. And so corrupted that all of humanity is willing to walk away from God, embrace alternate gods, and even to the point that they've become so evil that the loving God, who's willing to die for us on the cross, looks at this and says it has to be destroyed. The very God that's willing to destroy himself, his son, in order to make us redeem, or in order to redeem us, looks at this and says, this has to be destroyed. This has to be destroyed. This becomes a symbol or a metaphor of how destructive sin has become. Yet, in his mercy, he found one man that was righteous. Now, this doesn't mean that Noah was perfect and great, because the next story after the flood is not so great for Noah. But the idea is that he was blameless. And blameless means not that I'm perfect, because no one's perfect, but that I want to pursue God. I desire relationship with God. I want to obey God in order to demonstrate my love and relationship to him. And when I do not obey him, I repent quickly. I deal with it quickly. And so this is the idea of blameless or righteousness. There's a theological righteousness that you are completely without sin. And since the fall, none are theologically righteous. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then there's a practical righteousness. That is the idea that no one can be sinless, yet God credits us a righteousness because we want to obey and want a relationship and we repent quickly when we sin. It bothers us. And so these are the two righteousnesses that you'll see throughout the Bible. Noah 
is this righteous man? Now, it doesn't say his family is righteous. His family is preserved because of the righteousness of Noah. So Noah is preserved. And God, in his mercy and grace, gives all of creation 120 years to repent and get on the ark. And yet none of them are willing. That continues to demonstrate how evil they really are. If you have 120 years to repent and no one repents, that's, that's brokenness. That's fallenness. And so Noah and his family get on the boat. And God saves them in his mercy. And he is, the idea is that Noah becomes a new Adam. A new Adam. A rebooting of humanity, so to speak. Now, once again, with the flood, we saw the waters of chaos return. God pulled back his hand, his Holy Spirit, off of creation. And creation fell into chaos. And he just allowed the chaos to overtake creation. This is the natural result. Remember in Romans, God says, because they pursued sexual morality... And idolatry, God gave them over into their sin. One of the worst judgments that God could ever do to you is not punishing you actively through death or sickness or disease or whatever you think God does. The worst judgment he could ever do is give you exactly what you want. Allow you to pursue, go down the path of your selfish desires. So what God says is, if you don't want me in your life, then fine, I will back off. And you will be left to your own devices to handle your own life and your own problems. Now, any time that you repent and cry out to me, then I will be faithful to return and heal you. That's the message of God. I'm always there. You, if you've ever had children, sometimes you've got to just like let go and say, okay, you're not listening to me over and over and over again, so go ahead and bang your head against the wall a couple of times, so, not literally, <laughs> so that you can learn your lesson on your own. And when you're ready to come back and embrace my wisdom or my advice, then I will be here for you. But I realize now you kind of need a little tough love. You need to be given over into your selfish desires because you're not listening. And that's what God does. So he said he backs off creation and he takes his Holy Spirit off of creation and the waters return to chaos and darkness and disorder and all of creation is undone. And it's returned to this watery mass that is dark and formless and empty, just like creation. But then it says that God remembered Noah, which means he remembered his promise. Not that he forgot, but the word remember goes into action. And so he brought the wind of God, parted the waters again. Now remember that wind comes from the Hebrew word ruach, which can mean wind, spirit, and breath. And so he put his hands back on creation, the Holy Spirit, and he began to order and subdue and form and fill and bring light again. And off the boat comes the new Adam, Noah. And this is the picture that he's painting here. This is how God works with humanity. He wants to be involved in our life. If we choose to reject him in autonomy, then he backs off and lets us follow our self-law and our course of action. And when he can't bear to watch us destroy ourselves too much or his creation because he desires to redeem it, he comes back in and brings order. Or when we repent and cry out to him, he comes back in and he restores order and life to continue redemption going. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. And they get off the boat and God makes a covenant with them that he will not destroy the world like this again, that his desires to redeem them. Just like Adam, there's another fall. Not that there's Noah was without sin and fell again, but metaphorically. So Noah gets off the boat, and maybe it's the trauma of everybody in the world kind of dying. I always thought it was interesting that one of the most horrific, violent, 
acts of judgment on creation that would have been horrible to witness and hear all these people dying in the flood is what we choose to put in the children's hallways and the Sunday school classes of our things. It's like, let's, I know what, what's a great picture for pictures? Let's paint the scene of everybody dying on the entire planet and only these animals and humans are being saved. Yes, that's great for children. This is the image that's being painted here. And maybe Noah is overwhelmed by that traumatic experience, but he gets drunk. And he gets so drunk that he has no idea what's going on. He strips down naked. Noah does. He gets drunk. He passes out his tent. And his son, Ham, comes in and sees his nakedness. And his son comes in and mocks him. And he goes out and he tells everybody else, the other brothers, hey, let's go look at dad and how foolish and stupid he looks. Now, remember, we're not used to an honor culture. But if you go to Japan and China, they're very honor culture. Think about it. If your children were taking pictures of you naked and going out and posting it and sharing it with all their friends at school, that would be so humiliating, disrespectful, violation. That would break your relationship with them so much and break your heart so much, let alone adding honor culture to that. An honor culture where in those cultures they respect parents way more than our culture teaches kids to do. This just shows the absolute disregard for authority, for the loving parent relationship, for everything. That he's willing to destroy his father in a mocking, humiliating way, kind of like this. And this shows that sin has not changed. That that the Cain is here again. The family, Ham, will end up producing the Canaanites. And the Canaanites will come from Ham. And this idea is that like father, like son. And this nation will become this huge, horrible nation of sin and selfishness, dysfunctionality, and brokenness. And so sin continues to affect, ravage, and infiltrate humanity as we keep going. Then, after the flood, humans move eastward from where the Noah's Ark was. So this is the third moving eastward that we have. They move eastward to build a tower. Your Bible say the Tower of Babel. There's two words for Babylon in the Hebrew, Babylon and Babel. And both of these words are used interchangeably. Like, it's like Babel is the, um, the, the, the short version of Babylon. Like Will is for William, Babel is for Babylon. And all throughout the Bible, Babel and Babylon are all Babylon. And they're translated Babylon every single time in your Bible except for chapter 11. Don't know why. But they choose to call it the Tower of Babel. And I don't know why, but it's actually the Tower of Babylon. Because this is the beginning of Babylon the ultimate metaphorical symbol of the nation, city, anti-God, humanity conglomeration. This is the Tower of Babylon. And so they move eastward away from God and away from the symbol of God's redemption, the ark that saved them, and they move eastward to build a tower. And they are trying to accomplish two purposes. First, they don't want to fill this earth and scatter. God commanded to scatter and push the image out into creation and redeem creation. Humanity says, no, I don't want to scatter and fill the earth and make the earth more like God. I want to stay in one place and and gather together as a people group and make a name for ourselves. Not be the image of God, but be the self-reflecting image of themselves. So they decide to build a tower to reflect their image their godhood. We will build a tower that will go up into heaven. Now, they're not literally trying to build a tower that goes all the way up into the sky. 
It's just they're building their own cosmic mountain. If the gods sit on a cosmic mountain and rule, then we'll build our own cosmic mountain and sit on top of it. And you know this as a ziggurat. Those pictures of the spiraling tower that that French artist back in the early medieval period drew, that is not all. There's never been anything in all of archaeology that has looked anything like that. It's a ziggurat. The Aztec Mayans, the Cambodian temples, the, even the pyramids, if you go underneath the facing stone, there's a ziggurat under it. And you can see pictures and diagrams on the internet of this. They build a ziggurat because they're building their own cosmic mountain to enthrone themselves as God. And this becomes their government. They're building a government and a religious institution to make a name for themselves. So they are self-reflecting themselves. You can see this where God said, let us make humanity in our own image. Humans say, let us make a tower to reflect us. They use the exact same phrase. So the narrator is showing you that they're trying to become God. So as a result, God judges them by scattering them, making them go out into all the earth like he wanted them to and confusing their language. And confusing their language so they can't unify together. And you know how hard it is to do anything with anybody who speaks a different language than you and you don't speak each other's language. If you can barely figure out who they are and where they come from, speaking different languages, there's no way you're going to build a government together and have any kind of order or structure or self-unity. And so what this shows you is that sin has infiltrated the governments. That now every government, every institution, every organization that humanity creates is corrupted with sin. That there is no government that humanity can create. There's no institution that humanity can create. No organization that humanity can create that is not corrupted with sin in some kind of a way. All these stories, the fall of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, and the Tower of Babylon, all demonstrate that sin has corrupted everything. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That no, there is not one who is righteous. That the individual, that the family, that humanity that everything that we build, institution, governments, and corporations, and organizations, are all corrupt with sin. They're all broken. They're all autonomous. They're all power-seeking. They're all disordered. At this point, two kingdoms are now birthed, so to speak. Not literally, but two kingdoms become very prominent here. It is the Tower of Babylon that represents the kingdom of humanity, and the kingdom of God, who is enthroned above the earth. That God had to stoop down to see what they were doing. Not that God didn't know what was happening, because he's ignorant, but the image of him stooping down shows how far away they are from truly becoming enthroned gods, and how far away they have fallen from him and a relationship with him. And so now we have seen two kingdoms, the kingdom of humanity and the kingdom of Yahweh. The kingdom of humanity is symbolically represented by, sorry, they are broken and dysfunctional, which is symbolically represented by them speaking different languages. Their fact that they speak different languages and are scattered and cannot communicate is a physical demonstration of their brokenness, their dysfunctionality, their scatteredness. From this point on, Humanity will always be trying to unite itself together to build another Tower of Babylon. 
We will see this in Egypt. Let's unite together to build another Tower of Babylon metaphorically, the pyramids, which will make our gods an empire. We will see this with the Akkadians. Sargon II will build an empire, the first world empire ever, and he will brutalize people in order to build this empire. Then every government after that, Babylon and the Assyrians and all that kind of stuff, will keep doing that. And we'll see this ultimately with the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and then the Greek Persian, or sorry, the Medo Persian, the Medo Empire, and the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Mongols, Europe, Britain, imperialism, America, the United Nations. They're all examples of just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in our unity. And we're all trying to break down the language barrier so we can be united again. Yet, despite that, we're going to see God building his kingdom through one people group. Rather than pulling all the people groups together, he's going to pull all the people groups into Abraham, so to speak. And he's going to redeem the world through Abraham till eventually one day he will overcome. Now think about it. The speaking different languages is a curse. The languages were to keep the people from unifying. That doesn't mean we speaking different languages is bad, that we're evil. Well, we are evil. But it doesn't mean that if you're learning multiple languages that you're bad. It just means it's a curse because of our dysfunctionality. The goal is to overcome the curse. Humanity tries to overcome it through technology and governments and self-initiations. God is going to overcome the curse through the Holy Spirit that will come at Pentecost and everybody will begin to speak the gospel and a language that everybody understands to come to the unified language of the Holy Spirit written in our hearts. And this is the idea that everything is leading to those moments. Humanity overcoming the curse on their own and God overcoming the curse through the Holy Spirit. These are the two kingdoms. The point of Genesis 3 through 11 is that once the individuals are separated from Yahweh, then the family, society, and the governments and institutions they build all become corrupted. Yahweh gave humanity a good creation and kept giving them the chance to do what was right with his creation and expand his kingdom of blessing across the earth. Yet humans continually seized autonomy for themselves and brought tragedy and death to their lives and creation. What God does at this point, he disinherits all the nations. The image of God means that we were his chosen people. As the image of God, we were to reflect his image. We were to go out and represent him. We were to be fruitful, multiply, and our children would become the inheritance of God. But we said, no, 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 no. I'm going to murder. I'm going to collect and gather from my own power. I'm going to build governments for my own name. I'm going to embrace other pagan gods in order to do what I want. We want nothing to do with you, God. And humanity does this over and over again. So at this point, God says, I'm done. I'm going to disinherit the world. I will no longer use you, and I will no longer work through you to redeem the world. I'm going to disinherit you. And so he then divides all the nations up according to the sons of God. He says, no longer will I directly and intimately work in your lives. Now I'm going to assign you to a different angel, a different son of God. And I'm going to give you over to them, and they're going to rule over you instead. And then when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9, it talks about God assigning each one of the nations to a angel to rule over. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9. He assigns a nation to each son of God or angel to rule over. And we see this later in the book of Daniel, 
where it says that the prince of Persia, the son of God of Persia, is ruling over them. And the Persians, so there's the idea that there's angels ruling over the different nations, guiding them because God doesn't want to do it. And you can see this in Deuteronomy 32, 1 Samuel 26, 17, 2 Kings. God has no desire of walking away from humanity completely. He disinherits humanity, not in a a mom and dad who have a kid that they don't like anymore or displeased with their sinful life, and they're like, you're disinherited, I will never talk to you ever again, kind of a thing. That's the way we think of disinherited. He disinherits them in the sense that I cannot work out my plan of redemption through you if you refuse to reflect my image. If you're shaking your fist at me and saying, I don't want anything to do with you, and I don't want to follow your will, and I don't want to be submissive, I don't want a relationship with you, then God's saying, how can I use you and work out my plan of redemption for all humanity if you're shaking your fist at me all the time? So I'm going to disinherit you that I will no longer use you to fulfill my plan of redemption for humanity. Not that I want nothing to do with you anymore. I will never talk to you again. You can never be saved again, but I can't use you. You refuse to be used, therefore I cannot use you to redeem the world. So he steps back. So when God disinherits the nations and the table of nations of Genesis 10 and in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, you notice when God lists all the different nations in Genesis 10, Israel is not mentioned in the table of nations. He assigns a nation to each son of God or angel to rule over, but Israel is not in that table of nations. They're not listed because God is going to step into Abraham's life and he's going to choose Abraham to be his new inheritance. He's going to choose Abraham in order to work out his plan of redemption to redeem the world. 